Welcome to Knowledge on the Go, the podcast brought to you by the PI Collaboratives team at Vizient. I'm Marilyn Sherrill, Senior Performance Improvement Director here at Vizient and your host for today's episode. Our topic today is, I really think, an exciting one. We're going to talk to our resident expert on innovative medical technology about a new genomic test that can theoretically screen for more than 50 different types of cancer using a small blood sample. As you all know, early detection of cancer is so important because the earlier we can detect it, the more likely the treatment is to be curative. And this is why we do mammography to screen for breast cancer and colonoscopy for colorectal cancer. Unfortunately, the problem is we only have early screening tests for a handful of cancers. So in most cancers, we don't start looking for them until they are symptomatic and by then they are usually in the later stages. Therefore, better cancer screening is a very high-impact focus area for clinical performance improvement, and this new diagnostic technology has the potential to really change the cancer paradigm. So, Dr. Cummings, first of all, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Marilyn. I appreciate you giving me this opportunity to talk about this really innovative emerging technology. So, tell us more about the multi-cancer early detection test. So this particular new test is called Grail Gallery. And as you said, it has the ability to screen for 50 different types of cancer in a single test. So this test is a form of what's called liquid biopsy, which just means that you're analyzing a sample that's liquid, and in this case, blood, instead of a solid like you'd have in a tissue biopsy. And the underlying principle is that cancer cells, wherever they're at in the body, Some will eventually die, and when they do, they break open and they shed small amounts of their DNA into the bloodstream. So you can use lab methods to isolate these strands of cell-free DNA, and then you further analyze them to see if they're cancerous and also what type of cell they came from. Like, was it a brain cell or a lung cell or a liver cell? So as a blood test, I assume you can just use standard phlebotomy to collect the sample? Pretty much. You need to have a prescription from a doctor, usually your primary care doctor, to get this test. And then you can just go to a local lab that knows the sampling methodology for this test. Or if there isn't one of these near you, the company just sends you a specimen collection kit that has all the right kinds of blood collection tubes and the labels for mailing it back to their lab. In this case, it's pretty much any phlebotomy lab can do that. But overall, the process is really pretty convenient and it's a lot less invasive compared to some of the other cancer tests. So I'm with you so far, but I have a feeling that this test is a little bit more complicated than we've made it sound. Oh, yeah. The complicated part comes into play back at the lab where you sent your sample. So for the analytic process, they're using these cutting-edge, high-throughput, next-generation DNA sequencing machines. And not coincidentally, they have a lot of these high-speed sequencing machines because Grail was originally spun out of a company called Illumina, and Illumina is known for being one of the biggest makers of these next-gen DNA sequencing machines. So just as an aside here, how the gallery test came about is actually a pretty interesting business story. So at its start, I guess Illumina mostly wanted to focus on their sequencing business, and they didn't want to devote the time and the resources into the R&D needed to create and prove this kind of testing technology. But long story short, after about five years where Grail was an independent, venture-backed startup, Illumina reacquired them in 2021 for about $8 billion dollars. Oh my gosh, that is pretty interesting. So when they do the genomic sequencing, I assume they're looking for cancer-causing mutations in certain genes? That would be a really good guess. 
but here's where it gets complicated again. So they tested a bunch of different methods, including looking for different mutations to see which method was the best for detecting cancer. And the method that worked best was based on something called methylation patterns. So just like it sounds, methylation is what's called an epigenetic process, where a, a methyl group gets stuck to a specific DNA base site. This basically changes the activity of the genes. So it's really a different process compared to looking for mutations. But in the gallery test, they're actually looking at more than 100,000 different methylation sites. And so to do this, they use some advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning algorithms to look for patterns in the data set. And so, for example, certain patterns detected by the AI algorithm are going to be associated with cancer. I guess I'm starting to see why it took billions of dollars in research and development. We've also way surpassed my knowledge of genetics. Yeah, mine too. They didn't even teach this epigenetic stuff when I took genetics in college way back when. Also, I'd say without the programming advances that we've only just recently had in artificial intelligence, I think there's no way we could do the pattern recognition task in this test. So when I think about this test, you say it can screen for 50 different types of cancer at once. So it seems too good to be true. So let's move on to discuss the clinical evidence. What do the clinical studies show? So at this point, which is still admittedly pretty early in development, the main evidence we have is from a manufacturer-sponsored three-part trial called CCGA. So CCGA included about 15,000 patients from more than 100 different sites, and they divided this cohort up into three different groups. So in CCGA1, they tested methodologies, like we talked about, the mutations versus methylation, etc., and they landed on the methylation method. And then in the next phase, called CCGA2, they used a subset of the patients to train the artificial intelligence algorithm. So finally, in CCGA3, which included the rest of the patients not used yet, they then evaluated the clinical validity of the test. So what did they find in CCGA3? What they showed was that the test had a pretty high specificity of about 99.5%. And this high specificity was kind of by design. This means that about one in 200 tests may be a false positive. And this number is important because if you get a false positive, for one, it causes a lot of stress for the patient. And it also results in a bunch of costly and potentially harmful follow-up tests. And while one in 200 sounds like a lot, this is actually much better than we currently have for mammography, where the false positive rate in some cases can be as high as 1 in 10. What they also found was a moderate sensitivity. They reported an overall sensitivity of about 52% and a positive predictive value of about 44%. What this says is you're identifying some new cancers, but not all of them. And importantly, this is going to vary with stage and type of cancer. So for instance, the sensitivity is a lot lower for early stage cancers. And this is probably because they're shedding less cell-free DNA, so it's going to be harder to detect. And then of course, similarly, sensitivity goes way up for the later stage cancers. So one in 200 compared to one in 10, that's a big difference. So this sounds really promising, but I guess the next step is to do more trials to corroborate the findings? 
Good call. The current evidence was definitely compelling enough that there are now some ongoing studies. Some of them are enrolling tens to hundreds of thousands of patients, and the results from these are expected to be available within the next few years or so. I think these new studies will go a long way to help show things like the clinical utility, the appropriate patient selection, and and even the cost effectiveness for this test. So you talked to us a lot about new technology. Do we have some early adopters already offering this? Anecdotally, there are some larger healthcare systems who have announced that they're using the test. These include Providence, Mayo, Intermountain, and Oshner. For example, Intermountain, they reportedly rolled it out to their health system employees. And Oshner actually just announced use as part of a health equity program to improve cancer detection rates in their underserved populations. So this is typical for what you see for early adopters in that they were the ones that were usually involved in the original clinical studies and or they're the ones that are doing it as part of a new research study. Also though, if we're talking about self-pay for the test, pretty much anyone with the doctor's prescription can now order the test and so they are actually early adopters. So if I want to pay for it myself, how much are we talking about? So the list price for the test is $949. And then depending on how it's done, you you might incur some other miscellaneous costs. So that's the actual direct cost. But my next question is, is it worth it? That is a great question. I think whether this test is cost effective or not remains to be determined. And to quantify it, we really need more clinical and economic data from well-designed studies. It's probably going to depend on things like cancer prevalence. So for example, it'll be relatively more cost effective when you use it in those with a higher likelihood of cancer, for example, due to risk factors or older age. Another thing to look at is whether you can offset some of the upfront test costs by savings in treatment costs downstream, say due to identification of earlier stage cancer. For example, maybe it only costs 50000 to treat an early stage cancer, but it would cost more than 100000 to treat that cancer at a later stage. And then you also have to factor in the potential for unnecessary added costs, tracking down false positives. I think as you can see, it's a pretty complicated equation and and whether it's worth it, it will probably be the source of a lot of future discussions. Mm, I can see that. So maybe some financial modeling for all these costs and savings. Has anybody done that yet? Yeah, there are some of these available now. But the problem is that they still have a lot of assumptions going into them. For example, you can do a pretty simple number needed to treat type of calculation that goes like this. If the test has a true positive detection of one new cancer for every 225 patients tested, then you can just multiply 225 by $949. And that says it will cost about $213,000 in upfront testing costs to identify one new cancer. And then the question becomes, one of willingness to pay for that. So I guess the willingness to pay, that's a payer question, right? Right. And right now, most payers still consider this test as experimental, so they don't typically cover it. Although there are a few who have announced that they'll be initiating some coverage in select cases. Another thing the payers are probably looking at is just that high upfront cost. Take Medicare, for example. They cover about 60 million lives, And so if every Medicare-eligible person got the test, that'd immediately add about $60 billion in upfront payments for CMS. And then there's some suggestion that you're going to need this test annually. So then we're talking about $60 billion in costs every year. 
Now, just for some perspective, that's about twice what's currently spent on all the other cancer screening tests combined. And furthermore, right now, this is an add-on test. So it doesn't actually replace any of the current cancer screening tests. It just adds one more. So you can see that the payers are probably going to look really carefully at the data before pulling the trigger on coverage. Yeah, we could find a way for it to replace existing. That would make a big difference. If you look into your crystal ball, what do you see in the future for this test? Well, for one thing, we'll start to get some more results from these big trials that are underway. How it plays out after that, I think, really depends on what that data shows. Another thing to look for in the future is potential FDA approval. So we haven't talked about this yet, but the test is now available under the rules for a laboratory-developed test. And that means that technically they can do it and they can market it and they didn't need FDA approval. But they have applied for FDA approval, and it could be considered by the FDA, I think, maybe sometime in 2023. But I think if they were to get FDA approval, it'd probably really speed up the adoption process and maybe also help convince payer coverage, too. And hopefully there'd also be some FDA labeling that might help with the patient selection criteria. 2023, that's just around the corner. So do we have future competitors or similar products? Is this something we should expect in the near future? I'd say without a doubt. So there are a lot of companies doing R&D in the liquid biopsy field. And some are looking at sequencing cell-free DNA and looking at the epigenetics, just like in this test. But there's also a whole bunch of other potential targets and methodologies that are being studied out there right now. We also talk mostly about blood, but there are also different samples, so like urine or stool or cerebral spinal fluid. And so these samples might be better for targeting specific types of cancers, right? I think some of these new liquid biopsy tests are also going to be targeted at screening for just one specific type of cancer, say breast cancer or colorectal cancer. So in this kind of paradigm, the idea is that maybe this method will be more accurate or have a higher diagnostic yield. But on the other hand, this would mean that you're going to need 50 different tests for 50 different cancers, and then your costs are really going to add up fast. So I think which of these future screening paradigms wins out is kind of hard to say right now, but I think it's safe to say that there'll be many, many companies and products involved in this in the future. So stay tuned for more on liquid biopsy. Well, Dr. Joe, it sounds like we're going to have to have you come back sometime in the near future to keep us posted on how this all progresses. That's all the time we have for this edition of Knowledge on the Go. I'd like to thank Dr. Cummings for speaking with us today and thank you, our listeners, for taking the time to join us. For Vizient's PI Collaboratives team, I'm Marilyn Sherrill. And remember to look for more Knowledge on the Go podcasts. You can subscribe today, like us, or send us your comments at picollaboratives at vizientinc.com.